all learned deep lessons from the Passover and the days of unleavened bread. They teach us many lessons. Of course, the most profound lesson of all is that God loves every human being, and he proved it. He demonstrated it. Let's turn to John, the first chapter, John 1. He demonstrated it through his son. John the Baptist was baptizing. The next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We kept the Passover. Jesus was our Passover Lamb, sacrificed for us. To think of this individual, the Son of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Just think of the sin that just permeates every person and aspect of our world. And Jesus is the one who is the Lamb of God. Verse 35, again, the next day after John stood, two of his disciples, verse 36, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus was the Passover Lamb. His sacrifice demonstrated his love and the Father's love for each and every one of us. And we all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. His sacrifice will always be remembered. Let's turn to Revelation, the fifth chapter. Revelation 5. And the world in its hate and its cold-heartedness looks at the idea of Christianity. It just rejects that love that God has demonstrated so plainly and so clearly. His sacrifice will always be remembered as the lamb. In Revelation, the word lamb occurs 27 times. Uh, It's amazing. But we'll take a look at a few of them. Revelation 5 and verse 11. And I I beheld and heard the voice of many angels around about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Those of you who may be familiar with uh, Handel's Messiah, of course there's the Hallelujah Chorus, but this particular section, this chorus and oratorio, Worthy was the lamb that was slain. It's just so inspiring and uplifting. It's brought tears to my eyes uh, many times when I've uh, heard that particular section of Revelation 5. Turn to uh, Revelation 19 and verse 7. We are preparing to marry Christ. We are the bride. He's the bridegroom. Revelation 19 and verse 7. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I shall be his God, and he shall be my son. And he talks about those who are sinners are going to be, who practice sin, are going to be thrown in the lake of fire. Then verse 9, And there came unto me of the seven angels, which have the seven vials, full of seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And then verse 22, I saw no temple therein as the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Then uh, 21 and uh, see verse, 
Well, chapter 22, actually, in verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Here in the very last chapter of the Bible, Jesus Christ, the Passover Lamb, is still remembered even after the new heavens and the new earth are established. Verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants, which we pray will be us, shall serve Him. So let's remember that God has demonstrated His love towards us. That's one of the profound lessons of the days of unleavened bread. And, of course, the days of unleavened bread themselves, in addition to the Passover, teach us, as we heard in the sermonette, that we have to grow and that we have to overcome. We must get symbolic Egypt out of ourselves, and we come out of spiritual Egypt. My wife was perusing in uh, some of our archives the other day and came across Living Church News, March, April 1999, an article by Mr. John O'Gwynn, Deleavening the Corners of Our Minds. We have to make drastic changes, and as we, as selfish human beings, overcome self, we replace that with God's love. And one of the lessons that we learn is that there are those crumbs uh, there in the corners of our mind of sin. We have to search them out as we search around our homes to get the crumbs out before the Passover, the days of unleavened bread. So we have to get search those sins, those little sins and habits that are hiding in us. There is the sin of indifference, as Mr. O'Gwyn brings out here and refers to the parable of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan in Luke 10. Mr. O'Gwyn writes on page 13, deleavening the corners of our minds, as does the parable of the good Samaritan, this account illustrates the seriousness of the sin of indifference. I'm going to be talking about brotherly love today, and when we talk about the sin of indifference, we want to replace that with concern, with care without going thoughtfulness towards those who have needs. The serious sin of indifference. It's not enough for us to merely refrain from robbing or killing our neighbor. We must actively show love and kindness to others. The spirit of God's law requires far more than merely the avoidance of actively harming someone else. Now, I've avoided harming anyone, but, you know, have you helped anyone? He goes on, as we examine the closet corners of our lives, we must examine for sins of indifference. They violate in principle all of the commands that hang on the simple statement that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we have to identify the leaven in our lives and with God's help, replace it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That process is called overcoming. And it fulfills the Apostle Paul's injunction, Apostle Peter's injunction, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Matthew, the fifth chapter, Matthew 5. We need to make significant changes in our lives. Sometimes when we've kept the Passover in the days of unleavened bread, we think, yes, we do need to make some changes. But how many of us think of making significant changes, making drastic changes? changes in our lives. Jesus talked about that in principle in Matthew 5 and verse 29. Matthew 5 and verse 29. And if your right of eye offends you, pluck it out, cast it from you, 
For it is profitable for that one of your members should perish, and not that your whole body should be cast into Gehenna. Now, Jesus was not speaking literally. He doesn't want you to literally take your eye out of your body. But he's saying here, in essence, you need to take drastic action. What is it that you are addicted to? What is it that you need to change? I may have told you the story. We have uh, uh, on our basic uh, Time Warner cable system, we have HBO. And I've discovered, as many of you have, that HBO has some very repulsive, uh, even sometimes close to X-rated movies and programs on it. So I called Time Warner. I said, I don't want HBO. Get rid of it. And uh, I was going to go ahead and get uh, digital uh, cell phone service. And they said, well, would you like this digital cell phone service as well? Uh, you take HBO off my uh, Time Warner uh, television service, and I will consider your digital phone service. So anyway, I kept calling, and finally they came out to the uh, cable box between our neighbors. It was all covered with uh, fire ants, and so the technician had problem, and he cut the neighbor's cable and not mine. <laughs> so anyway, I had to call him back. Finally, he came out, finally cut the cable, and blocked HBO from our basic service. And after that, then I did go ahead and contract with uh, digital phone service after they finally uh, followed my request. But we have to take drastic action. We don't want leaven coming into our house. We don't want temptation coming into our homes. And Jesus said in verse 30, If your right hand offend you, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish and not that your whole body should be cast into Gehenna. So we have to take drastic action in our lives sometimes. As Jesus said, or as the Apostle Paul said, flee fornication. He didn't just say stand around and cuddle up to it. Run from it. Get far away from it. Jesus was very plain and clear that we have to take drastic action in changing our lives. And the only way we can do that, of course, is with the power of God's Holy Spirit. And that's why Pentecost is looms large and inspiration for us as we look forward to the next annual festival and Holy Day, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost. There is one quality that we all need. Turn to Matthew, the 24th chapter. Matthew 24. That quality is necessary and fundamental to be in the kingdom of God. But it's a quality that all true Christians have and that all true Christians will grow in. But here's a warning Jesus gave in Matthew 24 and verse 9. He talked about the beginning of sorrows, of wars and pestilences and famines. Then verse 9, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Now, where's the love? Where's the love of God? The world is not filled with the love of God, but there are first fruits. God is called to demonstrate to the world that there surely is divine love somewhere on planet Earth. And it's in His first fruits, in His called out ones. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. May that not apply to any of us here. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. Verse 12, 
And because lawlessness, iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. The love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. So Jesus prophesied that many will hate one another. And since Adam and Eve took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, mankind has rejected God's love. And it has accepted the way of selfishness and human nature. And the world even then became hate-filled. In Genesis 6 and verse 5 it says, Then the Lord, the Eternal, saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now we know that we have evil thoughts, and we have to be on guard against that kind of thinking, that leaven. And Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, this end-time world will be similar. God then destroyed, as you know, all human beings except Noah and his family. Human nature just dominated the nature of selfishness and greed and lust and even hate. I was uh, coming across the uh, Bible story by Basil Wolverton, and I thought this excerpt was interesting to apply to our evil day. And this is in Volume 1, the Bible story by Basil Wolverton, Wars Begin. He summarizes, By the time of Adam's death, there were thousands of human beings on earth. Even with unlimited space to live in, they banded together in towns instead of spreading out as God intended. Genesis 4.17 Huddled together by adjoining dwellings led only to more strife and misery. Men were so much against God's ways, listen to this, men were so much against God's ways that it wasn't possible for them to love one another. And yet God has called us to be the ones to demonstrate to the world that we can love one another. He writes, other bands of men formed to attack towns and seize their wealth. Nothing was safe from cruel, from the cruel and greedy, end of quote. So human nature and Satan's influence continue to produce terrorism and lawlessness, oppression, violence, and death. The influence of Satan and media, gangs and greed, all inflame hatred. Jesus warned, as we just read in Matthew 24, verse 12, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And all of us need to be on guard because the influence of lawlessness will grow more intense, and as we are exposed to it, we can be hardened. We can become indifferent. And we need to ask ourselves, will my love grow cold or will my love grow warm? How can I prevent coldness of heart? Let's turn to Romans, the 12th chapter. One of the lessons of the days of unleavened bread is how to love, how to conquer, how to overcome. Romans, the 12th chapter, and verse 21. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we do that? We have to overcome Satan, self, and society. Well, verses 17 through 20 show us, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of men. If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. That's the same message in uh, Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Follow peace with all men 
and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. It's the warning against bitterness. And we consider the commitment before baptism, be committed to avoid bitterness. How do we do that? Live peaceably with all men, as much as lies within you. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give peace place under wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so many times I know I want to get back at that guy or that uh, person. And God says, look, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Someone needs to be punished. I'll take care of it. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. That is behavior that is radical, that is revolutionary in a manner of speaking. It is totally contrary to human nature to give food to enemies who hunger and thirst to those who drink. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So Jesus said the love of many will grow cold. Let's be sure that we're committed to ensure that our love will grow fervent and warm. John, the 15th chapter, which we read at the Passover, John 15, gives us the instructions for loving one another. John 15, verse 12. Now, <clears throat> I was just reading on our internet, uh, our website, happened to be featured one of the articles in our previous magazine, uh, Must You Obey God to Be Saved? And the matter of obedience and commandment keeping is just anathema to some of the very liberal Protestants who say, you know, once saved, always saved. Don't worry about keeping the commandments. Uh, you don't have to, in a sense, they, they wouldn't say it so blatantly, you don't have to obey God. And here, in the very fundamental aspect of loving one another, Jesus uses the word commandment. And I wonder just how that grates against the Protestant liberalism. Verse 12, John 15, this is my commandment. It isn't an option. It's a way of life. And God's commandments are the way of give and love and serving. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Dr. Meredith spoke on this just a few weeks ago. As I have loved you. He pioneered the way for us. He showed us the way. Because not... Before this time, uh, had he the world had his example. Greater love is no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, I hope that's a part of your internal moral compass. I hope that's a part of your thinking, your character, your nature, that you are willing to lay down your life. When a conflict comes between a brother's need or a sister's need in the church or a family member and your own other selfish pursuits, do you think of this verse? Do you think, well, wait a minute, I want to, I'm involved in my gardening hobby, or I'm involved in my sport, but my sister or my brother has need. Am I willing to lay down my life for my sister or my brother or my friend? You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. And so he tells us that he calls us friends. But the problem is that individuals or religions and society in general take the word love and define it their own way. They don't define it God's way. 
Uh, you don't need to turn there. I know most of you know that. But 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Let's turn to Romans, the 13th chapter. Romans 13. So how does God define love? Romans, as well as 1 John 5, 3. Romans 13, 10. He mentions several of the Ten Commandments here in verse 9. And then verse 10, Love works no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law, or the fulfillment of the law. So Christ called us to love one another. Is your love cold? Is it uh, lukewarm? Is it warm? Is it fervent? Is it active, or is it just sleeping, so to speak? Well, let's consider in the remainder of the sermon just how we can warm up that love towards one another. Let's consider how we can grow in a more fervent love. And let's consider seven ways to ensure a mature, growing, divine love. Number one is to give your time. We just read that in John 15, 13. Greater love is no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Our time is our precious life, and we lay down our life we're giving of our time. Turn to Mark, the sixth chapter, Mark 6. Jesus was very busy, but he found time to serve the people, the thousands in the communities of Judea and Galilee. In Mark 6 and verse 30. He shared his life. In fact, we have a sermon in our uh, uh, sermon library, number 249, Share Your Life. I uh, mentioned about that uh, time when I was a student and realized instead of just going out and jogging a mile by myself that I ought to share my life and called one of the co-eds in the dormitory and asked her to jog with me. So we we do want to share our lives and not just be selfish. Jesus was not selfish, Mark 6 and uh, verse 30. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told them all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come you yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. <clears throat> Even the ministry needs a change of pace and a rest. And we do have ministers who have five and six different congregations or video groups to serve, and they're busy. They may be going to two different uh, congregations on the Sabbath and are just working, uh, visiting go-tos, and they need to rest from time to time. And so Jesus said, Come you yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. So Christ was serving. He was laying down his life. He was sharing his time. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And although they were going to go to find a private place to have a little rest, what happened? The people knew where they were going, and they ran while they went on ship across the Sea of Galilee. The others ran around on foot and met them at the other side of the sea. And Jesus had to spend more time with them. And they were hungry, and then, of course, you have the uh, miracle of the fishes and loaves. In verse 44, and they did eat of the loaves 
were about 5,000 men. But Jesus shared his life. When you think about it, God spends time with us. Turn to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65. The Father and Christ have invested their lives in us, in a manner of speaking. They spend time with us. They're always available to us. Isaiah 65th chapter and verse 1. I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me, behold me, unto a nation that was not called by my name. Verse 2, is God available? I have spread out my hands all day long unto a rebellious people which walks in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. A people that provoked me to anger continually to my face, that sacrifice in gardens and burn incense upon altars and brick. God says he's available. I have spread out my hands all the day long. He wants us to seek him. Let's turn to Hebrews, the 10th chapter. So while Jesus was very busy, he shared his life. And God the Father and Christ are always available for us. We need to have that constant contact, to be instant in prayer, and to pray without ceasing. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, Hebrews 10. How can we give of our time? Well, there are several ways. This uh, is one of the more fundamental ones. Verse 24 of Hebrews 10. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. How do we do that? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. So how can we spend time, give of our time? By not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And our brethren all over the world need to abide by that particular injunction. Now some live maybe hundreds of miles away, and maybe they can only make the effort because of fuel prices and the other uh, problems to attend maybe once a month. But uh, some live just halfway across the city, and they say, oh, that's too far, I can't come. And, of course, when Jesus looks at you and wondering, well, what kind of sacrifices are you making? Are you really dedicated? Are you willing to sacrifice in order to assemble particularly on the Sabbath day, because he leads up, of course, in this section here to the unpardonable sin. Verse 26, if we sin willfully after they receive the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. But we enjoy fellowship one with another, and the assembling of ourselves on the Sabbath day is one of those wonderful benefits and gifts that God gives us. And to all our brethren around the world, be sure you are making a definite, genuine effort to be at Sabbath services every Sabbath, again, according to your limitations financially and logistically, make an effort to be at Sabbath services every Sabbath. How else do we spend time and give of our time? Malachi 3 and verse 6. And we've had uh, during the feast of unleavened bread and the holy days and, of course, our fellowship here and local Sabbath services It's just so warming to hear the noise level of conversation before Sabbath services, so so much that it's difficult to get you all to sit down and start services, uh, which is a good problem to have. Uh, But nonetheless, we uh, assemble, and sometimes it's difficult for 
us to leave the Sabbath services. So that's a good habit that we have of, of good fellowship. Malachi, the third chapter. How else can we spend time loving one another? Verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord speak, spoke often one to another. No, we have to encourage one another often. It was just so wonderful on this uh, trip to California and fellowshipping with uh, the ministry and the brethren to be talking about spiritual uh, relevancy to the Days of Unleavened Bread, the lessons of the Passover, uh, just so inspiring. Uh, we appreciated being with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Harold Way, with Dr. Pace, uh, with uh, Dr. and Mrs. Fall, and uh, some of the other elders in the area. So it just is the type of unity, the type of interaction that helps us to love one another and to grow in that love. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and thought on his name. And he said, I will spare them as a man spares his own son. So we need to take time to communicate with one another and to speak the truth in love. In fact, we have uh, two sermons in our tape library, Speak the Truth in Love, Parts 1 and 2. That's number 146 and number 148. And, of course, Ephesians 4.15 tells us, But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. As we interact and as we communicate with one another, speak often with one another, one of the characteristics that helps us to love one another is a smile. And that's very common here at headquarters and in the Charlotte Church. So uh, you are all to be commended, and I hope that others around the world will learn the benefit of a smile. This is from the Arizona Health Magazine, uh, July 2004, and perhaps some of you scientists can confirm or deny the following. Smiling and laughing will have oxygen rushing to your brain in no time. Smiling and laughing will have oxygen rushing to your brain in no time. Smiling and laughing are the essence of brain respiration, an educational method that optimizes the brain's functions through integrated exercise for the body and mind. Listen to this. Five minutes of smiling is better than five hours of working out. You know, I, uh, if that's true, you know, it's a... Uh, Pretty easy choice, I think. Five minutes of smiling is better than five hours of working out. Ten seconds of smiling is the same as rowing a boat for three minutes. Well, I like rowing boats for three minutes, but uh, smiling for uh, ten seconds. So apparently, and if there must be a body of research that supports this, I hope there is. Anyway, (coughs) we'll help your brain and get more oxygen to your brain by smiling. That's part of loving one another, interacting. And as we uh, see later, what we say and how we say it uh, should be to the edifying and minister grace to the hearers. How do we communicate? Many communicate by Internet. Many communicate by cell phone or text messaging. Uh, What is it? Uh, Oh, Zitz, the uh, teenage comic strip that his parents were sitting down at the meal and all they heard with a teenager, and all they heard was this tick, 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 tick. And what, does, what Jeremy, the teenager, is doing is text messaging at the dinner table, underneath the table. And, of course, his parents uh, were wondering what he was doing. Well, he was communicating, but he wasn't communicating with them at the time. He should have been. Uh, 
Some of us communicate by writing letters. Um, one of the families we visited this past week uh, said that uh, she had taught their children not to send just greeting cards, but to design their own greeting cards. And the, now that they're adults, they still send greeting cards of their own design. So you parents can teach your children to communicate by designing their own greeting cards. And, of course, we have the get well cards, the greeting cards back on the table for those who requested prayer from around the world. And that's another way that we are showing love towards our brothers and sisters around the world, and they really deeply appreciate it. And God does intervene. Uh, There are so many of the answered prayers of people who have had problems, not just uh, health problems, but social problems, family problems, and our prayers have made a huge difference uh, halfway around the world or all the way around the world, for that matter. Now, we do need to communicate. My wife and I communicate often by taking walks. But do you know what inspired Webster's Dictionary? Like a lot of husbands throughout history, Webster would sit down and try to talk to his wife. But as soon as he would start to say something, his wife would say, and what's that supposed to mean? (laughs) Thus, Webster's Dictionary was born. (laughs) Well, we communicate often with one another. It makes a big difference. Another way of spending your time giving of your life, John 15, 13, is to be hospitable. Uh, Romans 12 and uh, verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Are you hospitable? When I was a freshman student, we had uh, principles of living. Mr. Herbert Armstrong taught that class. I think we had about 60 or 70 in the class. There was a misunderstanding. Mr. Armstrong had invited the class over to his home on Sunday. And somehow some had not gotten the message, but 13 of us did. And we went over to his home on North Hill Street. And uh, here I am, a lowly freshman, and Mr. Herbert Armstrong and Mrs. Armstrong hosted us. Uh, He uh, demonstrated, which was new technology at the time, a stereo system, and played that. And we're all sitting around enjoying the music, and then someone asked uh, one of the students, said, well, Mr. Armstrong, we understand that you play the piano. Could you please sit down and play the piano for us? And he said, well, no, I don't think so. And then a little while later, another student said, well, Mr. Armstrong, could you please play the piano for us? And uh, mm, no, I, I don't think so. And then Mrs. Armstrong said, Herbert, would you play the piano for those students? And he played the piano for us. <laughs> But he was, they were very hospitable. And, uh, you know, even though he was the leader, uh, he was not, uh, he was willing to host a lowly freshmen such as we were at the time and be hospitable. As it says in Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Let's turn to Matthew, the 25th chapter, Matthew 25. And here are ways in which we use our time to love one another. And as we do that, we keep in mind that every human being is made in the image of God and that Jesus put emphasis on the least of these, my brethren. Matthew 25, verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom 
prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Now, we can do that physically, and we can do that spiritually. And we are doing that very effectively, as Christ opens the doors, to feed those who are spiritually hungry, those who are spiritually thirsty. And yet we need to, of course, be aware of physical needs of others. I was a stranger, and you took me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. And then shall the righteous answer and say, Well, Lord, when did we see you hungered and fed you and thirsty and gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and took you in or naked and clothed you? And when saw we you sick or in prison and came unto you? Verse 40, And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. And so we need to make, be very careful that we understand every human being is valuable in God's sight. As we saw at the beginning of the sermon, that God has demonstrated his love profoundly to all of us through the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, and through his sacrifice. So number one is to give of your time. Sacrifice your time, John 15:13. Spend your time serving, loving the brethren and others. Uh, that is Galatians 6.10, do good unto all men, especially those the household of faith. So number one is give of your time. Number two is give of your physical goods. 1 John 3, verse 16. As uh, Dr. Meredith has pointed out, 1 John 3.16 is similar to John 3.16. 1 John 3 and verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Verse 17, But whoso has this world's good, and see his brother have need, and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? And so if you have this world's good, if you're able to help, if you're able to serve those who are in need, that is one of the ways of serving. I remember years ago we had, uh, when I lived in New London, Connecticut, we had a, a neighbor who had a garden. They were an Italian family, and they had a large vegetable garden. Every once in a while there would be a basket of fresh vegetables on our back doorstep. And we really appreciated them as neighbors. And yet one of the definitions of love is that we perceive the needs of others. And sometimes we, people say, well, I didn't know that they were out of a job. I didn't know that they were hungry and needed some money, you know, at that time. Well, why didn't you know? Well, it's the job of our deacons and deaconesses to be aware of uh, the needs of our brethren within the congregation, but it's also our responsibility. If we love our brethren in the congregation, we want to know about them. We want to get acquainted with them, and we want to be able to serve them in every way we can. But give of your physical goods. Now, some of us may be poor and we have the needs, and some of us may be too proud that uh, we don't want to ask for help. But we are a family, and we want to communicate our needs to others. I, I remember one time I was trying to improve <clears throat> my relationship with my wife. I was taking a, a class in uh, interpersonal communication, and... and uh, 
I uh, said something about to her, uh, well, hon, I need a hug. And so you express, and she gave me some hugs. You know, you, would she have given me those hugs if I didn't express the need? Well, I don't know. Uh, maybe she would anyway. But nonetheless, we have to express our needs, communicate our needs to others, and our responsibility in love is to fulfill those needs. I already quoted Romans 12, verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints. There is a caution, however, and I won't turn there, but Second Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. In other words, we do not reinforce the sluggards by uh, empowering them to stay in a uh, sluggardly state, if you will, a slothful state. So there is that caution, and there is that caveat, the proviso. But he says, we are to be distributing to the needs of the saints. Romans 12, verse 13. So number two is to give of your physical goods. Number three is to express compassion. Here we are again in 1 John 3, verse 16. Well, verse 17. But whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need, and in the King James, and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? In other words, you must have compassion or you don't have the love of God. So uh, in the New King James, it says, But whoever has this world's good and see his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? It shuts up his heart from him doesn't seem to have the uh, um, power of shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, uh, the old King James Version. But do you have compassion? Are you compassionate? Uh, let's turn to Colossians, the third chapter. From... Uh, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Compassion comes from the Latin com, C-O-M, plus pati, P-A-T-I, to bear, suffer more. The definition of compassion is sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with the desire to alleviate it. That's quite a accurate, one would think, uh, definition of compassion. Sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. Colossians, the third chapter, here in verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, the old King James, or tender mercies, new King James, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a complaint or quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. So he's saying put on compassion as a very mindset, as a very emotion. There is the old uh, Indian proverb, you all know, never criticize a man until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. You know, what is it like? You uh, may criticize someone for his or her problems, and yet you don't know personally the, pro- the obstacles and the pressure and the whatever kind of pain or suffering they may be experiencing. On the other hand, uh, there are those who've said to me, well, Mr. Ames, you don't know what it's like with my p- cancer pain here. I said, well, no, I don't know what it's like for that particular kind of pain, but believe me, I've been in a great deal of pain. 
and I can feel your pain. Of course, that's a more common expression now, I feel your pain. Uh, but do we really feel one another's pain? If we've been in pain, yes, we can. And some who are arrogant, some who are um, not humble enough have not experienced pain. They've not been humbled in their lives. <clears throat> once we've been experienced, once we've experienced pain, we've taken upon ourselves the sufferings of Christ, as it tells us in 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, and we rejoice in those sufferings. But we need to have the identity and the compassion for others. As it says, we have sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. Turn to Matthew, the ninth chapter. Matthew, the ninth chapter. And uh, verse 35. Matthew 9 and verse 35. Jesus says to send out his 12 apostles and uh, gave them a commission. He said, freely you have received, freely give. And chapter 10 and verse 8. But here in chapter 9, we have verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. His popularity went far and wide throughout Judea and Galilee. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted, or were tired and lay down the margin, and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then says he unto his disciples, to us, to you and me, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray you therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. You've been doing that, I've been doing that, and thankfully uh, the last few months uh, God has been sending more laborers into the harvest. Our co-workers have skyrocketed. I don't know what the percentage is, but at least probably 50% in the last year or more that God is sending more to support his work, more co-workers, more donors. And, of course, we need more laborers in the harvest, more ministers as well. And I hope that you, as a regular practice, are praying to God for more laborers to go into the harvest because you have compassion. You want people, God's people that are scattered. And uh, yes, they're scattered uh, throughout the United States, scattered throughout the world. And they may be many hundreds of miles away. We had uh, one individual who was above the Arctic Circle that responded to uh, our telecast. I believe it was Mr. Wachowicz up there in uh, Edmonton who went to some city uh, way up in the north, and this man came by kayak uh, across uh, down below the Arctic Circle to meet with Mr. Wachowicz. So people are scattered all over the world. They'll pray that God will send more laborers into the harvest. Number three is express compassion. Involve yourself emotionally. Be able to walk in someone else's moccasins, so to speak. And, of course, that's another sermon topic, the matter of emotional maturity, uh, let me just ask you, don't raise your hands, but when was the last time you shed a tear for someone else's problems? And you may have shed tears for your own problems, but have you shed a tear for those, the victims of genocide and Darfur or others uh, in the world who are dying of famine and mothers with their emaciated little babies with no milk to give them, no food to give them? Have you ever shed a tear that way? You know, Jesus 
cried with strong crying and tears and was heard in that he was feared or that he feared God. That is in Hebrews 5 verse 7. Jesus expressed strong emotions uh, both in the power of conviction and in tears as well. So let's grow emotionally but let's express compassion and involve ourselves emotionally. That is number three. Number four is brought out in James 5, verse 16. You all practice this as a way of love, of loving your brethren. James 5, verse 16. Confess your faults one to another, or confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. And we continually get letters from brethren because of the prayer requests that are in our bulletin or that you receive by the Internet, that their prayers have made a difference in their lives. And, uh, of course, there's the miracles. We expect that God will produce miracles in our lives and miracles for other, others, and that's uh, intercessory prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Verse 16, you say, well, I'm not righteous. Well, Christ in you is righteous, and he's our great high priest who does intercede for all of us, Hebrews 7.25. He ever lives to make intercession for us and is able to save us to the uttermost or forevermore. Then he gives the example of Elijah. You think Elijah was a really great prophet of God. He was. But what does he say about him? Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was physical. He got tired. He was despondent. He was discouraged at times. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. So he prayed fervently. And yet he was just like you and me. He was physical. He was human. I remember one time as a freshman and ambassador, I was in a dormitory uh, on Terrace Drive. And... uh, I had my bedroom window open. I could hear the uh, waterfall coming down from Mayfair and the bubbling stream at night, which was always so comforting. But I never heard any birds. And so I started praying, well, Father, please send some birds around, some songbirds. I don't hear any birds. And after a while, there were some songbirds that uh, came around the campus, and I began to enjoy them. Uh, The campus, of course, is very beautiful. as an aside, they do have a stream with a koi fish in it, and uh, one bird that shouldn't be there, it was a heron, he was perched on the top of Ambassador Hall looking down the stairway to that little stream where the koi fish was. And you just see him, he was really looking for an opportunity. It was quite a challenge for our groundskeepers there at Ambassador College to prevent that heron from gobbling up the koi fish. But pray one for another. He prayed again, verse 18, and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. We want to help our brothers and sisters stay on the right track. But here was Elijah, a man of like passions like we, and God answered his prayer. And I'm sure that everyone in here has had a prayer answer. Even our little children have had their prayers answered. But pray one for another. And, of course, to pray for one another, we need to know one another. And we need to know one another's names. I remember one time, um, well, that's another story. I'll get to that later. Uh, 
But uh, one way we can pray for our brethren around the world, of course, is the ministerial photo album. I've mentioned that before, and I hope that you use that and pray for uh, Thomas T. O'Hole around the world and, and uh, others in Martinique and others in uh, South Africa, Mr. Peter Vanderbile and um, uh, Mr. Uh, name doesn't come to me, but it will come to me later, uh, Mr. Christobotha and uh, others in Canada and in the Philippines and uh, all around the world. So be praying. We have, uh, let's turn to 1 Timothy 1, or 1 Timothy 2 and verse 1, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 1. And I'm sure you do this, but again, we want to be reminded how to love one another. And these are the ways. Pray for one another and pray for others with intercessory prayer. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Uh, we had the opportunity of visiting uh, the capital of Sacramento, capital of California, in Sacramento, and uh, with Dr. and Mrs. Fall, and uh, visited uh, Governor Schwarzenegger's uh, office. He wasn't there at the time. It was a Sunday, and the office was closed. But, you know, if you're a Californian, you want to pray for Governor Schwarzenegger, and you want to pray for our president, vice president, and cabinet members. Why? that we may lead a quiet uh, life and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. So pray one for another. And uh, one other example here as we go on, Colossians, the fourth chapter. Colossians 4, of course, each one of these points is worth a full sermon. And uh, we're touch and go whether we're going to finish this one. Um, Colossians 4, verse 12. Colossians 4, verse 12. A real tremendous example of one who served the brethren, loved the brethren. How? Colossians 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, salutes you always, striving, laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he has a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So here is one who is laboring fervently. He probably used a lot of uh, animation, a lot of body language. He uh, strived fervently in praying for the brethren. So number four is to pray one for another. Number five was a Passover commitment. Forgive one another. We had to be willing to accept God's forgiveness as well as forgiving others. And forgiving one another is fundamental to true Christianity. Forgiving one another is fundamental in loving one another. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, Ephesians 4. And it's, it's so disappointing uh, to see some people who will not humble themselves, that will let hurt feelings turn to disappointment and uh, hurts and hate and bitterness. But uh, he tells us here in verse 31 of Ephesians 4, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be you kind one to another. Has anyone told you that you're kind? 
are merciful. It's another sermon I may give one of these days. Tender-hearted, again, having that emotional involvement, having compassion, being able to be touched emotionally. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. We learned that lesson profoundly when we were baptized and renewed that lesson at the Passover. Turn to Matthew 5, verse 44. Matthew 5, 44. Again, I've emphasized this many times, but it is the kind of love that we do not have naturally. Matthew 5 and verse 44. Verse 43 says, You shall love your neighbor as has been said, and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, verse 44, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Notice verse 45, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. If you don't do that, you aren't uh, God's children. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Don't uh, even the publicans the same, the tax collectors? They flatter you, you flatter them. And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be you therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Or you shall be perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote about four kinds of love. I won't take too much time on it, but from the Missing Dimension in Sex book, 1981 edition, Chapter 6, The Love Man Doesn't Have. So the first great commandment, Mr. Herbert Armstrong writes, to be kept in its complete and true spiritual sense requires a love man simply doesn't have. Of course, God longs to give every man that love and fill him with it, but very few are willing. There are two extremes. Does the natural, unconverted man have that kind of love that we just read about here in Matthew 5, verse 44, the world doesn't consider that teaching of Jesus very practical because the world is empty of that kind of love. At the other extreme, two categories of neighbor closest to you are singled out in the New Testament for special love. One of these categories is one's neighbors closest to him spiritually, his brethren in Christ. Many scriptures put emphasis on a special love for these. Here again, a love is required which is totally absent in unregenerate man. But in that case, they are not brethren in Christ unless both are in Christ, have received God's Holy Spirit, otherwise they are none of His, Romans 8, 9. The other of these singled out in the New Testament for special love is the neighbor closest to you physically, your husband or wife. And right here is the big point, vitally important, that probably never before entered your mind. Four categories have just been cited. Love to God and of love to neighbor, your enemy, your true fellow Christians, and your marital mate. A man simply is not born with, does not have the divine spiritual love required for the first three of these four categories. To love God, enemy, fellow Christians spiritually in the manner the law requires. And so we need God's love. It comes from above. And you know where it comes, Romans 5, verse 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is given unto us. 
So number five is forgive one another. Number six is to live by 1 Corinthians 13. And Dr. Meredith has given a whole sermon on that subject, and you look that up in the uh, tape library, sermon library. Turn to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. And Jesus said, Man shall not live by every word of uh, bread alone, but by every word of God. That includes 1 Corinthians 13. Yesterday was Friday the 13th, and uh, of course there are all kinds of superstitions about the number 13, but I don't look at it superstitiously. I think when 13 comes up, I think of 1 Corinthians 13. You know, uh, godly love. So... Love suffers long and is kind, starting here in verse 4. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, seeks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And we had a sermon by that title, Rejoice in the Truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. And then verse 13, and now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I would encourage all of you, and I've tried to do it myself, is to just take one of those qualities, one of those characteristics of charity or love, and work on it for one week at a time. I remember giving a sermon years ago, and and I, I exhorted the congregation, well, just work on patience this week. And the next Sabbath, this lady came up to me and said, Oh, this has been such a trying week. You told us to work on patience, and I have had to, you know, to really work on patience with all these trials and problems came along. So maybe you can still work on patience and not have all those trials and tests that come along. Although, of course, it tells us in, in James, the first chapter, but let the trying of your faith work patience. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be entire, lacking nothing. And so when I think about developing patience in the trials we experience, that there's a value to it. Because I'm a type A personality, and I think, well, this is wasting time. But it isn't wasting time if you're learning to be patient. I, hmm, you only got an hour left. Um, Oh, just... I want to tell you a story. You know, people in the Far East are a lot more patient than we are. One of our church members was uh, coming out of Burma, I believe it was, and was going to meet with one of our ministers. And he had to travel by foot uh, for a half a day um, to get to a boat on the river. And the boat on the river only went once a day. And uh, after working and trudging over the mountains and getting to the port uh, facility there on the river where he was to take the boat down to another city, he just missed the boat. The next boat was not for another day. But you know what? Unlike me, unlike some of you, all he did was to just fold his arms, fold his legs, and sit there for another 24 hours till the next boat came. It didn't perturb him. He had the patience to endure a whole day. Now, I would think that's a waste of time, but not for him and not for us if we know that the trying of our faith works patience and we're letting that patience have its perfect work that we're entire lacking nothing. Charity suffers long. And, of course, you can take the other translations, NIV, 
uh, charity is patient or love is patient. But suffers long has a, a real connotation to it, doesn't it? Because when you're suffering because someone is obnoxious, you're suffering because someone just keeps talking and won't keep quiet. You know, you are suffering. You're suffering long and you're patient. So we all need to work on all of these qualities, work on patience, work on kindness. And kindness has the idea of thoughtfulness. That is, perceiving someone else's needs and being thoughtful. And it's so encouraging to see God's people who perceive your needs, they think about your needs, they are thoughtful, full of perception of your needs, and help your needs. They're kind, <clears throat> they're kind and thoughtful. And don't envy because we, we esteem others better than ourselves. I won't turn there, 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. And, of course, that was one of the fundamentals I taught in, for a freshman speech class, fundamentals of speech, because that's the number one, or has been many times in surveys, the number one phobia among Americans and others, uh, the fear of standing up before an audience and speaking. And, of course, we had uh, the young ladies who were going to speak, and I said, well, no. You know, one of the things is that you need to learn is to love your audience. If you love your audience, uh, you won't be fearful of your audience. And you'll have your mind, of course, I won't give you a whole speech class lecture here, but you want your mind on the subject and not on yourself. As uh, Jesus said, Matthew 10, 8, uh, freely you have received, freely give. And when we communicate, we want to give in that way. I had to stand uh, as student body president before the assemblies uh, at college and forums, and uh, before me were all the evangelists, Mr. Herbert Armstrong and all the other evangelists. And, you know, I, I could have my knees knocking uh, because here are all the, the top VIPs, including Mr. Apartian, uh, you know, there. Well, he didn't make me tremble. But uh, anyway, you know, you had to think. I remember one thing that Mr. Herbert Armstrong said at one time when I, I was feeling kind of inferior to one of well, <laughs> inferior to one of the evangelists, and uh, one evangelist had the reputation, uh, I can't confirm this is what he said, but one lady came up to this evangelist and said, uh, Dr. So-and-so, you make me feel inferior. And he said, lady, you are. <laughs> no, <laughs> no uh, I hope he didn't say that. That <clears throat> may be an urban legend. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, I felt a little uh, estranged, let's say, and, and I remember one thing that helped me was that Mr. Herbert Armstrong said, now look, God is up here, and if I'm close to God, but you're not close to God, we're not going to be close to one another. But if I'm close to God and you are close to God, we are going to be close to one another. And that helped me to have this love that casts out fear. And when I stood before Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Partian, Dr. Meredith, and others as a student in the assemblies and in forums, uh, I didn't have that fear. I didn't have that nervousness. Uh, only once when Mr. Armstrong corrected me for some error. But, <clears throat> uh, but nonetheless, you do have that love that casts out fear. And remember, we need to encourage one another. As uh, Jesus heard the voice from heaven in Matthew 3.17 
And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We can encourage one another as well, and hopefully we can give one another positive reinforcement. And that's another subject. But we need to live by 1 Corinthians 13, strategy number 6. Key number 7 is to love with a serving attitude. We all learned that ceremony and lesson and the foot washing. The Passover is John 13. We might as well turn there and review that again. John 13. No, the high-minded, the vain, the arrogant are not going to do this. John 13 and verse 15. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, verse 16, John 13, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Turn to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. Ephesians, the sixth chapter. Again, we need the attitude of a servant. How may I help you should be a part of your normal approach to strangers. Uh, that is, normal strangers. Ephesians 6. <laughs> Ephesians 6, verse 5. Servants. And again, the word is in the Greek is doulos. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Now, some people like to bypass human authority and management, uh, supervisors, uh, ministry, em- employers, but that's not God's way. God's way is you demonstrate your submissiveness to Christ and God the Father by your submissiveness to your employer, your supervisor. And I've told you the story before about how I was, my first job at Ambassador was in the transportation department. I had been a transportation engineer, and so my first job was washing automobiles at uh, Ambassador College. And I, I was slacking on the job, and I noticed that when the boss came around, oh, I started being pretty busy and diligent in the job. And I realized, wait a minute. Now, this automobile is not just Herbert W. Armstrong's automobile, which it happened to be at the time. This belongs to Jesus Christ. And I am washing Jesus' car. I serve him. And that's what he's saying here, as unto Christ. Verse 6, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the slaves, the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And there are many that are bond. They are bond servants in the military. I know what it's like, and I had, well, I won't go into that. But you, you know that you are not your own. You can't go where you want to go when you want to go. You are a bond servant. And so we are bond servants of Christ. He's bought and paid for us. We need to have that serving attitude. Just one other uh, scripture here, uh, 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, interesting that the Apostle Paul is talking about this one family that served the brethren diligently. 1 Corinthians the 13th, uh, 16th chapter and verse 13. 
Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Verse 15, 1 Corinthians 16. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. You might want to mark that in your Bible. Devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. The King James Version has it, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. So let's have that serving attitude. That serving attitude goes beyond our congregation. It goes to the world. As class number three of the Living Leadership Course handout had it, remember the lesson on the heart of a leader? The handout had a quote by Mr. Meredith from the booklet, What is a True Christian? And this is what he wrote. What is a true Christian? A genuine follower of Jesus will strive to be a giver, to help, serve, encourage, and lift up his fellow human beings. And he will put his whole heart into helping to give God's precious truth to others. As Daniel wrote, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Those who are genuine followers of Christ will strive to help, serve, encourage, and lift up his fellow human beings, and he will put his whole heart into helping to give God's precious truth to others. Thank you for your part in supporting the gospel going out to the world. Christ is opening up new doors, and we are seeing more laborers coming into the harvest. We are ambassadors for Christ. He's given us a mission to preach the gospel and to turn many to righteousness. So number seven was love with a serving attitude. Jesus warned that in these end times, because lawlessness would abound, the iniquity, the love of many would grow cold. So our love has got to grow warm. Our love must mature into the fullness of God's divine love. And our Father is preparing for us a family. He has called us to be a part of his family. And we're preparing to marry the Lamb. God's love has been demonstrated to us. God's love is eternal. He even gives us his love by which we can love him and love Christ. He gives us his love by which we can love one another. And he gives us his love by which we can love our enemies. One final scripture, 1 Peter, the first chapter. So how can we love one another? We need to practice one of these principles once per day or once per week. And some of you are already practicing these very fervently and effectively. Number one was to give of your time, to share your life. Number two was to give of your physical goods. Number three was to express compassion and involve yourself emotionally. Number four was to pray for one another. Number five was to forgive one another. Number six was to live by 1 Corinthians 13. And number seven was to love with a serving attitude. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Brethren, let's pray that the Holy Spirit can flow out from us in rivers of living water. Let's grow in godly love. and Let's love one another fervently with the divine love that is from above.